Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and delightful autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This week we will be dissecting Crossing Jordan Season 1, Episode 7, Sight Unseen. We'll be getting into chloroform, kidnapping, and a little anthropology thrown in for flair. And we have an awesome true story to share with you all at the end of the episode, so let's get into it. So we open with Dr. Macy, who kind of creepily is checking out the office manager, Lily, who is played by Katherine Hahn. She's like and eating a strawberry and they like zoom in on it. This is the point and where like, I was like, oh, this episode's going downhill from here. It was, she's like slow-mo eating a strawberry and like they, <laughs> it was way too long of him just staring at her. I hope she got paid extra for that. God, it was so uncomfortable for me. <laughs> And then, so Jordan then comes in and she's like, just stares at him while he is staring at Catherine Hahn. And then she interrupts him and tells him that he should just ask her out. And then he changes the subject very quickly um, by giving her a case. It's an 11-year-old who was hit by an SUV. Jordan says, the young ones never get easier. And Macy replies, the day they do is the day I quit. I liked, I liked that. I like that he said yeah. that because, yeah, they really don't get any easier. Even though yeah. he's just being a creep to the women in the office. But no, I mean, like, I agree with him there. That's the reality of this job. Like those pediatric cases, kid cases, they they never get easier. And Mm-mm. you just it's part of the job. You got to get through it. Yeah. So they bring this 11 year old in for exam and Jordan is dictating her exam and she's looking at his clothes and notes the tread marks from the car hitting him the tires left skin tears and internal chest injuries and there's a technician maybe this is a green flag because they actually have a technician and most shows don't show representation for us all right we'll throw a green flag we didn't have any green flags <laughs> guys so we were just discussing whether or not we should have more green flags but yeah we'll, we'll toss in a green flag just for autopsy tech representation So there's a tech photographing the body, which we also do. We've talked about this before in past episodes, but they're doing it at an angle. So technically for the best forensic photos, you want it, you want to be perpendicular to what you're photographing to keep everything in scale and just to get like a good picture in general. So the police reports say the driver never saw the kid, but he was walking home from school in a band uniform, which should have made him pretty visible. There's no paint transfer on the body, and shout out to Low Cards Exchange Principal. And there's no contusions from the front bumper. So this is something that you can look for in a pedestrian versus car accident case. Sometimes you'll see bruising or injuries on the leg at the level of the bumper. And you can even measure where the bruise is to, like, the bottom of their foot to measure how high the bumper is to identify, like, what type of car hit them. Yeah, like, say it was, like, a hit and run. Like, this case, the person reported the incident but like say it was a hit and run and you don't know what kind of car you're looking for you can like approximate like the size of the car based off of some injuries and it can sometimes even help identify how large the car was depending on how high up the injury from the bumper of the legs is which you just said um so jordan looks at her notes and says that petechial hemorrhaging which is pinpoint hemorrhaging might have occurred earlier The boy's liver temp when he was picked up was in the mid-50s, which Jordan said would track if he had died a few hours earlier than their estimated time of death. So liver temp isn't something that we do typically, and we're just going off of our experience. However, this is a thing. We looked it up. 
Some offices might do this, we just happen to not do it, but this is a real thing. This requires making a small incision in the upper right abdomen and passing the thermometer into the tissue of the liver, and caution should be taken not to alter or destroy any existing wounds on the victim. And some people have suggested measuring the core temperature by inserting the thermometer into a knife wound or gunshot injury to negate the need to make a new incision. And this should never be done because the introduction of a foreign object may contaminate or alter the wound, which can be key evidence to the case. So for practical reasons, the rectal temp is usually taken if a body temp is going to be taken at the scene, and Jordan thinks that the car didn't kill him. Something else killed this boy, and he was already on the ground when the car hit him. Cut to Jordan going into her office, and a psychiatrist named Howie Stiles is laying comfortably on the couch waiting for her. He starts off by startling her and then creepily hitting on her, which, like, what is up with the men in this episode? And she just casually laughs it off. It's a whole theme of just the whole office, of all the men in the office just sexually harassing the women, and, like, nothing <laughs> happens. It's just, like, the punchline, and I'm like, this is so uncomfortable they're just taking it they're not questioning anything and this man is a psychiatrist coming to check on her mental health and he's making like lewd sex jokes to her and i'm like what is going on and she's like ha 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 you're so funny and it's just like it's so upsetting it really tells you the year that this episode was made because if this was done today oh man People would be canceling it. I mean, I agree. It sucked. Like, I was so uncomfortable watching it. I'm like, he's he's literally, like, in between checking on her mental health, talking about having a quickie with her. And I'm like, excuse me, sir. Please leave the way you came. Get out. <laughs> Get out of the office. So he then gets serious and asks her about her nightmares. And she says she hasn't had one in 51 days. But who's counting? She says it's nothing... Quote, a quickie and some fresh air won't cure, to which the psychiatrist quickly replies he's available for the first, and even offers to clear off her desk so they can get right to it. Like, what am I watching? This is a forensic show. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable. I don't know what the history of these two characters is, but it was so out of pocket. He was just, like, about to, like, throw... I came here for the autopsies. <laughs> I think he even, like, threw some stuff on the floor. Like, I think he was, like, really ready to go, and it was just so insane. So he then invites her to drinks, which she declines, and he says that lack of social interaction is something that he's concerned about, but that he's also, quote, turned on. I really... This guy. In this universe, this man, man is a psychiatrist. He has a medical degree, and he's supposed to be checking on this woman's mental health. And he's telling her he's turned on. She's not here for it. I can't. <laughs> I'm I not can't. here for it. She throws something at him, and then he leaves. So we leave this horrible interaction, and we, then we cut to Macy talking to two other pathologists and he says that during construction nearby a skeleton was found it's the remains of two bodies and their clothing appears to be from the 18th century so dr macy says that the city can profit from this but they just need to find the who the when and the where since this is a little out of their wheelhouse they called in a forensic anthropologist named candace mcintyre she is attractive, and the two pathologists, who are men, are very excited to work with her. And apparently, this episode's theme is just men being inappropriate to women in the workplace, which is amazing. I 
was cringing this whole episode. So back to Jordan. The tech is telling her the tissue samples they had tested on her child case showed that the boy had been dead for much longer than they originally thought. There were Grushman spirals in the mucus plugs. So these are microscopic spiral-shaped mucus plugs in the sub-epithelial mucus gland ducts of the bronchi, and that's the, the two air passages to the lung that come off the trachea slash your windpipe. And they are often indicative of asthma and chronic bronchitis, so his lungs were hyperinflated, and Jordan thinks that he had an asthma attack. They found him near a hospital, so they guessed that he was trying to get there when he collapsed. And the police report didn't say anything about an inhaler, and he didn't have anything in his pockets either. Lily comes in and says that Mr. and Mrs. Bishop are on their way to ID their son, and Jordan asks to get his belongings and bring them to the conference room, and then she says that it was bad enough having to tell them that their son was dead, but now she has to tell them that this was something preventable if their son had only had an inhaler. When Jordan is meeting with the parents, they say that they thought he was maybe at a friend's house and he usually walks home from school, but when he didn't come home and he didn't call, they got worried. Mr. Bishop says he drove around for hours, but then he finally called the police. Mrs. Bishop says that her son, Terry, knew how bad his asthma was and usually always had his inhaler on him. Mr. Bishop says that they even made sure that he had one in his backpack, and Jordan gives them their backpack, but they don't find any inhaler. And Mr. Bishop says that's impossible because he packed it himself. Jordan says they didn't find any albuterol in his lungs either. And just for anyone who isn't familiar, albuterol is a bronchodilator, which means it dilates or like opens up your bronchi to help you breathe. And that's usually what the medicine is in an inhaler. They keep looking through his bag and they find things that aren't his, like a hairbrush and a textbook with somebody else's name in it. Jordan correctly guesses that this isn't his backpack and that's why Terry didn't have his inhaler. There's a name in the textbook, and it's Sarah Browning. Mr. and Mrs. Bishop don't recognize the name, and they say they don't think it's a friend of their son's. Back to the other case with the skeletons found at the construction site, the two younger pathologists and the forensic anthropologists are looking over all the bones they found, which they have laid out on autopsy tables. One of the pathologists says that they looked very closely, and you can see the head of the femur was rubbing into the worn socket of the pelvis. He says it's juvenile arthritis and he's hypothesizing that this body is of a male around 25 years of age who was most likely walking with a limp. They found two bodies, two pistols, and two slugs, which the other pathologist thinks sounds like a bar fight gone wrong. But the forensic anthropologist thinks it sounds like a duel and they also found two hair lockets, one found in each of the decedent's pockets, so it looks like they were fighting over the same woman. Meanwhile, Jordan goes to Sarah Browning's house. She knocks on the door, and when a man answers, she says that she has his daughter's backpack. And then this man pulls out a gun and drags Jordan inside. I was not expecting that. And he says, where's my Sarah? And Jordan explains that she's a doctor who works for the state and that she doesn't have Sarah. The man lowers his gun, and Jordan sits to talk with the parents. I'm like... I would have been so shaken up after someone pointing a gun in my face, but... Right? I wouldn't want to sit and talk. Yeah. She was very willing to just sit and talk. The man, who's Sarah's father, Mr. Browning, says that they came home and there was a message on the answering machine saying that the kidnapper wanted $100,000 in ransom for their daughter's return. They don't have that kind of money, but I did notice they have a very nice house. Like, this house was huge. And I'm not... I don't want (laughs) to... I don't want to assume things, but I'm like, not assuming, assuming, but I'm like, 
they were trying to make it seem like they didn't have any money. I'm like, you have a very nice house, though. <laughs> Your house is beautiful. Um, but they say they don't have the money, and their daughter goes to a private school on a scholarship. The kidnapper said not to involve the police or he'd kill Sarah, so that's why they didn't call the cops. Jordan says that she wants to help, and she tells them that a boy that the Emmy's office picked up last night was with their daughter when she was taken. Jordan thinks they can find some forensic clues that can say who took Sarah and where she is. The banks are already closed, so there's nothing else they can do until the morning. So back at the morgue, they find chloroform on Terry's body around his mouth. Jordan said she pulled two dozen red carpet fibers from the back of Terry's band uniform, and she's having a tech run them for her on QT. But they also found ash on Terry's shoe, and she asked the tech to ballpark the composition of it. Jordan thinks someone was following Terry home, and when they tried to chloroform him, he had an asthma attack, and that's when they dumped his body. She thinks they wanted to hold Terry for ransom, like they are doing with Sarah now. So back to the skeletal anthropology case, the anthropologist IDs one of the skeletons as a Benjamin Hamilton, whose family owned Boston's shipping yard. I looked this up. None of this is real. <laughs> I was like, is this true? Is there like a... I, I don't think of any of it's course. true. Of course. It's TV magic. I was excited. I was like, oh, maybe this is like some true story. We could talk about like that. history. I don't think it was anything. Unless I Googled Why the wrong thing. Why always lying? <laughs> Watch, we're going to get mail, and people are going to be like, actually, there is a Benjamin Hamilton, and someone who's way smarter than me is going to tell me all about it. Uh, so, yes, according to the show, his family owned Boston Shipping Yard. And in 1787, their oldest son, Benjamin, who did walk with a limp, vanished. Benjamin had a falling out with his business partner, who they assumed is the second set of remains. Back to Jordan's case, she goes to her dad to ask for help on the case. I'm assuming, again, I don't watch this show regularly, but it sounds like he's like a retired detective. And after looking it over, her dad says that the kidnapper never meant to hurt the kid. He just wanted him for the money. The fact that he left the kid near a hospital means that he felt guilty. He thinks Sarah was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. And Jordan went to her dad, just to explain this, and not the police because the kidnapper said no cops. So she's trying to, like, find a loophole around it and still get help without involving the cops. So Jordan's dad said that he could get an audio expert in the department to analyze the message left on the Browning's answering machine. So they call in Detective Reynolds, who's an audio expert, and he listens to the message. He notes fluctuations of white noise and barely audible metallic scratching. The kidnapper's voice is nervous, almost panicked, and Detective Reynolds can tell that he's on a cell phone, so they try to trace the mobile signal to pinpoint his exact location. There's an echo, which makes Reynolds think that he's in some type of truck. The metallic sound is metal against metal, but he also hears plastic rustling. Reynolds guesses that the sound is from hangers, so the truck might be some type of delivery truck, maybe a dry cleaner's, and Jordan says that they found traces of cleaning fluid in Terry Bishop's sinuses, so they need to call the boy's parents to see which dry cleaner they go to. If the worker is there and has been paying attention, he knows a lot about the bishops, so he'll know they have money, which is why he originally intended to kidnap Terry for ransom. And Sarah was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. So they find the dry cleaner, and Jordan and her father go to investigate, and they see a van on the street, and Jordan's dad draws his gun. They see someone inside the van in the front seat, and they go to see who it is and find that somebody has already beaten this man up, and he's bloody with a gunshot wound to the chest. So 
Jordan doesn't even check for a pulse or anything, and she says, and, like, she said no cops, but as a doctor, like, it isn't her responsibility to, like, now involve the cops and do her due diligence. At least call an ambulance to see if they can get a pulse back or something. Like, right? This is also in, like, the middle of the night. Yeah, like, how... How long was this guy dead? Like, I I don't know. There are so many questions. <laughs> Giving Jordan some major side eye in this scene. So was her dad, though. Her dad's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> she says there's limited blood loss and the red carpet fibers on the van match the fibers that they found on Terry's uniform. And so if this is the kidnapper now dead in his van, where is the missing girl? Jordan goes to get her kit to do an autopsy on this dead guy it just in the parking lot without reporting the death or calling somebody. She's just, she's just going in. This is worse than Rosewood. Rosewood usually gets all up in scenes without even being the assigned pathologist uh-huh. originally. This is worse. <laughs> this death is not even reported. And she's just about to do an autopsy. Because like, if you think about it, Best case scenario, they find the girl and this death is still going to have to be reported and she's still going to have to explain that she didn't report the death and she just did (laughs) an autopsy. A professional autopsy is still going to be done on this man, whether she is doing it in the parking lot or in the autopsy suite. She's just going to have to explain how she contaminated the whole scene and did an exam on this man in the van to try and make it look like uh, it was... Oh, my God. This is a huge red flag. So, so big of a red flag. Like, even her dad is very against this. Her dad who just, like, pulled his gun and, like, isn't even supposed to be there. And he's like, hey, maybe this is a bad idea. (laughs) Like, let's think this through. So, she says that she isn't going to slice and dice the guy. She just needs to get some trace evidence that might help her. Her dad points out that she might end up contaminating the whole crime scene. And, like, he's not wrong. That's exactly what she's doing to begin with. So Jordan's dad convinces her to then call the police. So she tries to call but can't get through to the detectives and she leaves a message. She goes to investigate the body in the van anyways and says that she'll try again. She'll try calling again later. Jordan's dad says he doesn't see any signs of blood on the wheel or the door handle. So he wasn't killed there and that he was dumped in the van. The seat also appears to be put back farther than this guy would need to sit so he would drive. Uh, so it doesn't appear that he usually drives this van. So someone else drove, and it looks like this guy put up a fight. There's bruising on his face, knuckles, and Jordan thinks that there's possibly skin under his nails. So she guesses that he's been dead for around three to four hours. They also see some kind of soot on the man's boots, which looks like the soot or ash that was on Terry Bishop's sneakers, and they look at the dead man's eyes, and it looks like the killer gouged the man's eyes out in a fight. Jordan pulls out the man's contacts and says that maybe they can get a thumbprint off of it, so I don't know how good of a print you'd get from this in reality, and latent prints on non-porous surfaces, like smooth, smooth surfaces like glass, metal, or plastic, tend to be very fragile and they need to be preserved as soon as possible. The primary technique is to expose the non-porous surface to superglue fumes like cyanoacrylate ester and superglue reacts with moisture present in the latent print converting the latent print into a hard plastic and bonds it to the surface. I don't know how possible this would be with flimsy contact lenses so 
I'm not sure if this is a red flag, but it just feels like a stretch. I'm going to say red flag. Red flag for them. Because <laughs> I'm mad that she's doing this in the first place. She's better than this. But also she said the eyes were like, the eyes were like gouged out, but the contact lens is still there. So the contact lens was just like really pushed into this guy's face. I was Being pushed in. Yeah. I want to know if it is possible to get. But like, uh, wouldn't your eyes be closed? That's what I was saying. Like, wouldn't he have like tried to like like teared up or blinked while this guy was poking him in the yeah. eye to like rub the print off i feel like if you would get anything it would be it'd be like the partialist of partial yeah. prints i also when i was trying to look up if this was possible i was googling like fingerprint contact lenses and it was just a bunch of advice on how to like put your contact in without getting a fingerprint on it <laughs> <laughs> so there is possible to get a fingerprint on your contact lens the more you know and have it like blur your vision there's eye drops for it if anybody is having that problem <laughs> mm-hmm. but, that's so crazy to think about yeah i just kept finding like techniques on how to clean your contact lenses so i guess it is possible to get a print on your lens but that's when someone's like delicately putting it in their own eye, not when yeah, there's an altercation and someone's gouging their eye out. So I don't know how possible it is. So they go back to the morgue to try to get a print off of the contact and they're in the office after hours. So Jordan can't run it in the system until the computer room opens the next morning. She asks her dad to call in a favor and he says it could take a while. Dr. Macy interrupts them and asks why she and her father are there so late. Jordan says she can't tell him, but her dad convinces her to tell him. So back at the anthropology case, one pathologist says that the nicks in both rib cages can give them the precise location of where the bullets entered the torso. So one way to tell this would be to look at the beveling on the bone from where the bullet hit. An entrance wound would have an internal beveling, which means that the outermost layer of bone would have a small defect than the inner layers, and an exit wound would have external bevel, which would be the opposite pattern. However, there are exceptions to this. Like when a bullet strikes the skull at a very shallow angle, it may produce an entrance wound with both internal and external beveling, and this is known as a keyhole defect. Or a graze gunshot wounds occur when a bullet scrapes or grazes over the skin without penetrating more deeply, and these wounds are usually elongated to oval in appearance and may have marginal tears at the edges. If the tears are pointed, they can be used to indicate the direction of the bullet. The tears point in the direction the bullet is traveling and away from the direction from which the bullet came. In the show's case, it looks like they were both shot in the back, which isn't typical for a duel. And a tech comes in and tells them to check their pistols and bets that they were never fired. He then tells him that he thinks it was their seconds who shot them, so duelers always have a second. If you ever watched Hamilton, it's in the song Ten Duel Commandments. I was just going to say I know it. (laughs) I know it from Hamilton. I'm a little theater nerd. A little theater nerd, even though I wasn't really in theater. I was in the stage crew, but I love musicals. I was a major theater kid. I love it. So their seconds probably saw the duel as an opportunity, buried the bodies, and then disappeared with whatever valuables they could steal. Back to Jordan's case, the dead man in the van was named Tommy Hughes. He was doing three years for armed robbery, but got out on good behavior 21 months ago. The fingerprint, surprised that they got a fingerprint, Matches someone named George Lupo, who is Tommy's partner in the armed robbery. Lupo has a much longer record and seems to be more dangerous than his partner, Tommy. Jordan guesses that Tommy kidnapped the kids and when Terry died, this caused Tommy to panic and call his old partner, George, for advice. 
George got greedy and wanted the ransom for Sarah to himself, so he killed Tommy and took Sarah from him. Jordan's dad says that he thinks that George will kill Sarah the second he gets the money, and he says that they need to get the FBI involved if they want to save Sarah. We then cut to Jordan, her father, and the FBI at the Browning's house. An FBI agent can't believe that Jordan knew about this since yesterday and didn't involve the police. She withheld information. I mean, same. Right? She withheld information and contaminated a crime scene, and Jordan defends herself by saying she didn't want to jeopardize the situation. But, like, even... Okay, so say she went through with her plan, didn't involve the police, and they saved this girl, but they wanted to bring charges up on this George Lupo guy. She, like, all of the evidence she found would not be admissible oh yeah for sure like they wouldn't be able they wouldn't they can't do anything they wouldn't be able to charge this guy on any evidence she found she just ruined the entire case for everybody yeah so she's saying she didn't want to jeopardize the situation i know she wanted to save sarah that's the primary goal and but if they ever wanted to put like arrest this guy for kidnapping her they wouldn't be able to guys don't contaminate a crime scene could ruin everything yeah please don't don't do autopsies <laughs> on men in parking lots, guys. How many times do we Just, have to tell you? That's the golden rule. <laughs> Don't do it. So the phone rings in the house and the FBI traces the call and the Brownings answer. The kidnapper tells him to put $100,000 in a brown paper bag and to put the bag in an empty sleigh on the Children's Park carousel at noon that day. He tells Mr. Browning to leave immediately after dropping the money. The FBI sends a unit over to the Children's Park carousel, and then we see Mr. Browning going up to the carousel to drop the money off, and the FBI team is nearby, and so is Jordan, Mrs. Browning, and Jordan's father. Mr. Browning drops the bag where he was told and leaves the carousel. They see a man approach the carousel to drop off another bag and pick the one up that Mr. Browning had just left. They chase the man, and he runs into the road to try to get away and gets hit by a car. He's dead on scene and unable to tell them where Sarah is. Jordan says that they need to get him to the morgue. What's the rush? She could just do the autopsy on the street. Right? She's on the street. (laughs) Just do the autopsy in the parking lot. (laughs) So in the morgue, Jordan gets the team together and says that she needs to know where the guy she's bringing in as a case right now has been for the last 24 hours. They find hair fibers on the decedent, George Lupo's, clothing that isn't human, and they think they're canine, and the hairs are burned. The ash and soot found on Terry and Tommy's shoes were 98% organic with high traces of bone matter, so they think that this is cremated ashes. Jordan is trying to figure out where the guy might have been that had chloroform, dog hair, and ashes. She thinks that he was working at an animal shelter. The FBI agent tells her to check his records, and she says that there is no time and the only place in town with a facility that she's looking for is like one of the local animal shelters. So they cut to them barging into the shelter and they find Sarah alive in a locked room at the shelter and they reunite her with her parents. And that's kind of how this episode ends. They actually end, um, Dr. Macy does ask Lily out. <laughs> oh yeah, they came full circle with that. <laughs> and Lily does accept. He stopped being creepy. It, it, she does accept and it was a reciprocal crush. So it, I guess it wasn't, as cre- I mean, the whole scene with the strawberry was a little uncomfortable. It was still creepy. It was still creepy, but yeah. 
<laughs> it was also very unnecessary. It was such a... I don't know if I'm remembering... So we're recording this like two weeks after we watched the episode because I unfortunately had COVID <laughs> and I'm still recovering. But like... And then I got sick. <laughs> so that's why we've been on a little hiatus guys so i'm trying to remember but like in my memory of the episode it was like way too long of a scene of her just eating strawberries yes it was the, it was the very beginning scene and they just focused on her for way too long she like offers him a strawberry at first too and he's like no nah, i'm allergic and then later he like goes in his office <laughs> and then he's just watching her eat the strawberries like in the break room i'm like this is weird yeah <laughs> but you know she liked him too so maybe she knew he was watching mm, i don't know if that makes it better <laughs> i don't know if it does either i'm just trying to think of anything so this episode had us googling strange things while trying to look for a true crime that related back to this episode shout out to our fbi agents who uh are probably very worried about us i looked up a bunch of asthma and chloroform cases <laughs> yep yep definitely on more lists than i was before <laughs> anyway uh when we searched animal shelter kidnapper um we stumbled upon a pretty unique story and this one actually kind of has a happy ending which most of the stories we talk about with you don't so we thought this would be a good one to share with you all so this story takes place in april of 2019 in pennsylvania and is about a dog named edgar who went from quote unadoptable to a hero by saving three little girls from being kidnapped melissa lambert and her husband tom weren't initially looking to get a dog as they already had their hands full with their three young daughters who were aged three to eight at the time but then they met this dog named edgar who was a treeing walking coonhound who was at the local humane shelter where they would often take the girls to go see the animals. And Melissa Lambert was just drawn to him, and the family adopted the four-year-old dog, who had previously lived on the streets and had been labeled unadoptable by a shelter in West Virginia. However, Edgar would soon become a hero who would scare off a kidnapper that broke into the Lamberts' home in an attempt to kidnap one of the girls. 20-year-old Thomas DeWald had already previously abducted a four-year-old girl from her bed in the same area, he locked the girl in a wooden box, but she managed to escape the next morning when he left for work. Since the first girl he had kidnapped had gotten away, Duald was looking for someone else. The Lambert family arrived at their home at around 1.20 a.m. on Sunday, April 28, 2019, after attending a funeral out of town. The parents carried their sleeping daughters to bed and then went to bed themselves, and the dog Edgar went to sleep in the girls' room as he usually did. Two hours later, Edgar, who was normally a laid-back dog, began to, quote, lose his mind, according to Thomas Lambert, and went into a pure rage. Edgar wouldn't stop, even when Tom tried to calm him down, and that's when Tom Lambert heard footsteps in their downstairs kitchen. He went downstairs quickly and found the window and the kitchen door opened, but both had been locked by the Lamberts when they got home, and they made sure of this because they had heard about the kidnapping of the four-year-old girl in their area. Thomas Lambert was quickly on high alert, and he recognized his pattern of the break-in from the previous kidnapping, and he grabbed a knife and ran to check on his girls. He found them safely in their room, and he woke them up and brought them to his and Melissa's room to keep them safe. He then went back downstairs and checked every room as he called 911. The police soon arrived and cleared the house again to make sure there were no intruders inside the home. Thomas explained that Edgar had alerted him to an intruder by going nuts, 
However, by the time the police arrived, Edgar was just on the floor sleeping, seemingly because his work of protecting the girls was done. After the police arrested Thomas DeWald in connection with the break-in and the kidnapping days prior, the police told the Lamberts that the suspect said he paused inside the Lamberts' home after hearing Edgar's barking and weighed the options, deciding whether or not he wanted to wait for the dog to calm down or to leave. But it became clear that Edgar wasn't going to back down. So DeWald decided to leave. Edgar's behavior that night is quite different from how he usually behaves, according to the Lamberts. They've even said that he barely blinks an eye when a mouse runs across the room. In the days after the break-in, Melissa and Tom tried to be brave in front of their girls, but the reality of what did happen, and even worse, what could have happened, made them feel sick to their stomachs. Tom Lambert said, When you hear more details about what happened, it's horrifying to consider. But the intruder's mission failed, and he was quickly apprehended, so I consider it a win. We got this information from a penlive.com article, and we will link it in our show notes if you want to read more. Oh my god, that's such a wholesome story of the dog saving and, like, protecting his family. I know! And I, it's not very often we get to tell, like, happy stories when we're talking about our line of work. And especially... Nice change of pace. I always get nervous when we watch episodes that involve, like, pediatric cases. Because, like they said in the episode, it never gets any easier. And so I'm like, oh no, is this a true crime about something horrible that happened to a kid and but i was able to find this nice story of a a dog saving three young girls and even like the four-year-old who escaped is a total badass <laughs> like right the girl who did get kidnapped escaped damn i like that the story like nobody was harmed and like everybody ended yeah. up okay in the end yeah except for thomas dewald fuck that guy well sucks to be him <laughs> yeah so yeah that was a really nice story So, to end this episode, we tallied a total of one green flag and two red flags. So, in our opinion, this episode of Crossing Jordan does not pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at InsideTheMorguePod and DM us with anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye!